Good morning. My name is Dustin. If uh, you haven't met me, I would love an opportunity to meet you. Um, I am a socially awkward person, and so if you aren't comfortable around people, that's fine. Come say hi to me. We'll be awkward together. I'll be back at Connection Point after service, and I'd love an opportunity to meet you. Uh, We are continuing on in our series this morning, which we're reading through the book of Ephesians called Therefore, Herefore, which if you haven't observed it by now, the words Herefore are contained inside of the word therefore, and we presented it this way because the book of Ephesians is really a book where the Apostle Paul lays out everything that Jesus has done, and then he says, therefore, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, we, Christ followers, are here for a purpose, and today we've come to the third chapter of Ephesians, and to me, Ephesians 3 is one of the deepest passages in all the Bible, it's this unique collision of like deeply spiritual and deeply practical talk and I just I kind of just want to get into it this morning and so if you have your Bibles we can go there together Uh, if not we'll have the words up here on the screen but this is Ephesians chapter 3 starting at verse 1 and Paul sets up what he's going to say he says for this reason I Paul a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That's just Paul setting up what he's going to say. And that's kind of an advertisement, is it not? Like Paul's talking about this mystery that he's sharing with the Gentiles. And, and he says first, he says, I'm writing this from a prison cell. And, and we know that this is true because in the book of Acts, we, we know that Paul is writing this letter from a prison in Rome. And so this mystery is being shared by way of a prison letter, which is already pretty intriguing. But Paul doesn't stop there. Not only is this letter written from a prison cell, but Paul says that it was revealed to him through a revelation, like a a vision, a prophetic message from God. So prison letter, prophetic message, pretty intriguing, but Paul doesn't even stop there. He says, not only is it written from prison, not only did I receive it through a prophetic vision, but Paul says this mystery hasn't been revealed to anyone in the previous previous generations, meaning literally no one up to the point when Paul's writing, no one even from the Old Testament, even though they had prophets, had any idea what God was up to. And now Paul is telling these Gentiles, I get to share this secret with you guys, this mystery. And it's like, Paul, what's the mystery? And in verse six, Paul finally gets to it. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I spoke about this last week, that these Gentiles, these non-Jewish believers, had been invited to be reconciled with God and have this fulfilling, life-giving relationship with Him because of Jesus' death on the cross. Whereas God had previously exclusively been for the people of Israel, that now by Jesus' blood, he had made it possible for anyone to come to know him simply by faith alone. God was now for all people. And because of this, there was this severe racial 
and social tension plaguing society in the days of the early church. Now, we wouldn't know anything about racial and social tension in modern-day America, would we? Of course not. But in this early church, the color of your skin and your social status, and more specifically, who and what you identified as, was everything. Again, can't relate to that in America at all. And last week, we read through this passage that explained how Jesus came to break down all of these barriers and unite his believers around himself. The passage was beautiful. It literally talked about how his people would be built as like this metaphorical building with Jesus as the immovable foundation and that the Spirit of God would dwell inside of this building and then infiltrate this planet through his people that people would come to know him and be saved by him. And that was regardless of skin color and social status or money or past sins or or literally any other defining factors. Whatever their identifiers were before, they were no longer those things. They were now just heirs of the kingdom of God. Paul writes in the book of Galatians and takes it to the most extreme degree. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The barriers are gone. That's a big part of this mystery. And so for us, it means that your identity in Christ overrules every other identity in your life. You hear that? Like really hear that? Your identity in Christ overrules every other identity in your life. In the early church, as this was beginning to catch on, because there was so much racial tension between uh, the Jewish people and Gentile people, there was so much tension that Christians actually began identifying themselves as the third race. The third race. Because identifying and aligning your entire person around the color of your skin and your background was so toxic and divisive that these Jesus followers began to simply say, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Gentile, I'm just a Christian. I'm a third race. I'm not playing by the games that the rest of society is playing by. And I wonder in the world today if the fact that arguments about identity are literally taking over every area of life whether it's race or sexuality or gender or political affiliation, I wonder if the fact that everything always goes back to identity shouldn't be this massive red flag that spiritual warfare is still alive and well, even in America today. I mean, do you think that there might be powers, both natural and supernatural, that might be fighting for you to embrace every identity except for your identity in Christ? I'm seriously beginning to wonder If what's happening, at least in our country right now, isn't all just a ploy by the enemy, just pulling the same stunts he was pulling 2,000 years ago, getting us fighting and spewing hate and dividing ourselves over all these questions about identity. And if Satan is, in fact, behind all of it, he must be pleased as a peach by now by how things are playing out. I may sound a little radical here, but I'm okay With that, we live in radical times. What if we actually allowed our identity in Christ to overrule every other identity in our lives? What if we took a play out of the early church's playbook? What if if I wasn't a Republican or Democratic Christian? What if I was just a Christian, you know? What if I wasn't a black or white Christian? What if I was just a Christian? What if I wasn't a progressive or orthodox Christian? What if I was just a Christian? What if I didn't identify 
as a weird Christian or not weird Christian, you ever say that? I bet you have. I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of the weird ones. <laughs> what if I was just a Christian? I mean, don't we know that these additional identifiers literally suggest in and of themselves, I am in this group and there is another group. To proclaim or live like I'm this kind of Christian is to suggest that there is a different kind. And I think the danger in this is that a lot of times when we play this game, it actually ends up that we're in a race to just win people to our brand of Christianity more than we're concerned with just winning people to Jesus. Now, you can have an identity. You can have convictions and beliefs and leanings. Believe me, I've got them too. But I'm telling you that the second that that identity compromises the purpose Jesus Christ has given you, you need to let it go. Simple example, if you're a hardcore Democrat or Republican and that identifier makes you hate people on the other side or judge or alienate or openly mock them, maybe that identity isn't healthy for you. If your identity, whether political, social, sexual, whatever it is, if your identity draws you into treating people a certain way or participating in things that don't align with the life that Jesus has called you to live, that identity isn't healthy for you. And so have your identities if you have to, but understand that your identity as a child of God takes precedence over all of that. He said it. That's why some of these Jews and Gentiles basically said, man, all this racial stuff is killing us. All we do is fight. It's distracting us away from what God is trying to do. So we're just letting it go. I, I mean, I know it's a radical concept to live in America and not play the identity game, but I do believe that it's worth considering. And it really encompasses this mystery that Paul presents to the Ephesians that the sacrifice of Jesus took groups of people who would have never come together, and it made them a family. And that's really a picture of what heaven's going to be like. People from all nations, every skin color, background, struggle, all invited to sit at the king's table and bask in his glory forever. And Paul is saying, not only is that what heaven is going to be like, but God has actually begun that process here in this life, that the sacrifice of Jesus has extended an invitation to the king's table for all people. And it has this power to bring all people together. And it's just like, wow. You look at how divided the world is, and that starts to sound so good. And then Paul continues in verse 7. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentile the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that brings us to the next point that Paul makes, and it's sometimes broken instruments play the most beautiful songs. I mean, do you hear Paul? Do you hear what he's saying? Not only is it amazing and mysterious that this gospel has the power to bring all these different people groups together into one body, but to add to that, God uses the least likely candidates to spread the word about it. Paul says, I'm the least of all the saints. And he's not being self-deprecating or like falsely humble. He's, he's being serious. Paul's like, don't you know what I've done? Like I used to be a bounty hunter of Christian people trying to spread this message. Like I've sentenced Christians to death and watched them die. I've kicked in the front door 
of Christian homes and drag them out into the streets, you have no idea how unlikely it is that I would ever be the one writing this letter to you about the immeasurable riches of God's grace. However, God chose me because he said, if they see what I can do with you, they'll know that anything is possible. And the first part of Ephesians, the Ephesians 2 passage that Jamie preached a couple weeks ago, he talked about this verse that says, for we are his workmanship. Other translations say masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're God's masterpiece. His most proud work. The Greek word here used for masterpiece is the word poema. Poema. Think of it like the word poetry. That God is basically saying everything else And all of creation is written in like plain narrative, once upon a time, blah, blah, blah. But God's people, those who have given their lives to Jesus, we aren't standard writing. We're like beautiful poetry or music in comparison to everything else. I mean, just think about that for a second. Like, why us? Why are we a masterpiece? Is it because we're so awesome? I think you can see that there are definitely parts of humanity that aren't awesome. So what makes us poetry when everything else is just standard writing? Well, I think it's exactly what Paul said, that we're the only thing in all of creation that can testify about life both before and after Jesus. We're the only piece of creation that can be redeemed in this life. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, all creation and all humanity was fractured and broken and like the shroud of death fell over everything. And the Bible says in Romans 8, That creation, all of creation, groans waiting for its redemption. The rest of creation has to wait until Jesus returns to be redeemed. And the passage says that we wait and groan too, but humans are different because those who have put their faith in Jesus, we've received the first fruit of the Holy Spirit, meaning that when you said yes to Jesus, you were made new and this process of transformation started in your life. And that's the thing, that's this ongoing transformation process that's taking place in the life of those who have committed themselves to Jesus. That ongoing, po- that ongoing transformation, that's what makes you poetry. Your life is meant to be a picture to all of creation about the redemptive work of God's grace. The life of a Jesus follower is literally meant to be this song that just screams, look what God can do. And so you might be a struggling believer and things might be tough. You might be overwhelmed. You might still find yourself struggling with some sin. might find yourself even questioning and doubting sometimes. But according to Paul, you still have this song that you can sing. If you've said yes to Jesus, you've had the small taste of heaven. If you've said yes to Jesus, you've seen this like passing vision of him. You've caught a glimpse of him even for a second. It just like lit you up. It brought you to life when you were dead. It gave you hope and peace and purpose and it started to transform you. And I know the transformation process might feel slow and tedious, but you have to continue to sing your song, your poetry, your poema, your living observable proof of God's grace. God chose you because like Paul, he said, if they see what I can do with you, they'll know that anything is possible. And then, wow, this this next part is just like staggering to me. It's hard to wrap my head around. So Paul says, I'm here to preach the immeasurable riches of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, 
he says, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now there's something in this passage that's easy to miss if you don't understand the language that Paul's using here. Paul says that he's revealing all of these things to the church so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Now, when, when Paul says rulers and authorities in heavenly places, he's not talking about angels and saints in heaven. He's talking about demonic powers. And it's easy to miss that because you read heavenly places and you assume good things, but Paul didn't say heaven. He said heavenly places, which is to suggest, to suggest like the realm that we don't see. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul referred to Satan as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And then in chapter 6, Paul's going to tell us that our fight isn't against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers of darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I just want to make sure we're hearing Paul clearly because it's a stunning thing that he just said in this passage. He said that the church's existence shows evil that it chose wrong. Now, I, I know we don't cover a lot of demonic stuff all the time, but hey, I told you this passage is deep. Now, don't misunderstand what this means. Don't misunderstand what I said. This doesn't mean that it's the job of Jesus' followers to just simply go around telling the world how evil they are. That's not what this is. Observe that some people have tried this, and it's failed miserably. The showing evil that it chose wrong, it's not done with your words, it's actually done with your life. And it's done through the manifold wisdom of God. Well, what's the manifold wisdom of God? Well, the manifold wisdom of God is for us to know that His way is always better than any other way. It means that every decision God makes and how He decides to go about things is the most effective and loving way possible. And I know that there are human beings and probably demonic powers that question God's methods all day, every day. Why would a loving God allow this? Why doesn't God just do this instead? Why do we have to commit our lives? Like, why can't people just live however they want? And, and by the way, what was the point of the cross anyway? Why do Christians get so excited about all that? Wouldn't have just, wouldn't have, have been better if God just... And Paul says, and, and this seriously, like, it astounds me. Paul says that through the church... That through this like collection of broken instruments from uh, all nations and different backgrounds, that when we play our song together, that the demonic powers in the universe are going to see that they've made a massive mistake turning their backs on God. It's crazy. And there's going to come a day when the invitation to follow Jesus will no longer be available, and, and those who have not turned to Jesus will fall on their knees in despair because they will witness the immeasurable riches of his goodness and they'll fully understand what they've missed. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, but only those who bow before he returns will be saved. 
You know, if God's existence were abundantly obvious to everyone, like there was a giant countdown in the sky of his return or like video footage of his resurrection with verified medical records from trusted doctors, then like, yeah, there'd likely be more people following out of compulsion, but like that isn't love. And also, part of following Jesus is dying to yourself. Part of following Jesus is this humbling process that like drives you to your knees and makes you lift your hands in desperation like a child, like screaming for their parent. Part of this process is turning to something that by every worldly metric makes absolutely no sense. Like we'll acknowledge that. This thing that we believe is crazy until you give your life to him and everything changes. It's crazy until you give your life to him and everything that you used to know gets turned upside down, and that's not accidental. It's all by design. It's a picture of God's wisdom in 1 Corinthians. It says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful, powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. It's all Him. It's amazing. You know, you, you hear this common phrase among Christians when you, like, compliment or appreciate their life. Christians will say, like, man, that was all God. That wasn't me. Like, I can't take credit for that. What's fascinating is that we don't say that because the Bible tells us to say that. The Bible doesn't specifically tell us to say that. We just say that because it's true. But the Bible does say that we won't boast. We won't take credit. The Bible essentially predicts that someone who has been saved by Jesus will kind of like cringe and recoil anytime someone tries to give them credit. Like we can't do it. It's just, it's all him. And Paul says that just by our existence that spiritual dark forces will start to witness the wisdom of God, that our lives will show them that they're wrong. Now, will they repent and turn to him, these spiritual dark forces? No, they're, they're stubborn, they've made their own decisions. But they will shudder and fear at the mention of Jesus' name until he returns. And in the meantime, until Jesus comes back, when these spiritual dark forces observe us, the Bible says they'll know that they're wrong. That's crazy and amazing. I, I used to have night terrors as a kid. I'd, I don't know if you've ever had this. I, you know, I'd like wake up facing the wall and I'd be like terrified to like turn around and like look at my bedroom or even like open my eyes. I'd just be terrified. And I was a church kid growing up. And so in, in those moments, I would just say, Jesus, 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 over and over again until I felt better. Maybe I'm the only weird church kid that did that. But it helped. I'd feel better. I'd fall back asleep. And I'm not saying that my room was full of demons. I have no idea. But it helped. And so I'm just saying, as we read this passage, feel free, if you ever do feel darkness over your life, feel free to testify to them. Look at me. Look at what Jesus has done in my life, and so you can tempt me, you can mess with me, and you can try to steal my joy, just know you chose wrong, and your day is coming. I mean, consider how heavy these three things are that we just talked about. First, 
setting aside worldly identities in order to fully embrace the identity we have in Christ, that's really hard in the world that we live in. Second, committing to minister or committing to still minister and testify to God's goodness even though we're broken instruments and we continue to struggle and fail, that's really hard a lot of the time. And then finally, showing evil in the universe that it's wrong just by your existence, just by how you function in this life, that's borderline impossible. Actually, all three of these are impossible by our own power. And Paul knows this because Paul's living this as he writes from a Roman prison cell. And so Paul wraps up this chapter by writing out his prayer for the church. Paul writes out this prayer for what he hopes will happen inside each and every one of us. And that if these things happen that he prays for, that will enable us to embrace this radically different life that will drastically stand out from the rest of the world. And we're going to read through this. I'm actually going to pray this over you. And I'm not going to stop and explain this prayer or like give commentary over it. The commentary is all of the things we've already talked about this morning. The prayer is how they will be made possible. This prayer of Paul for the church coming true is the only way we'll ever be able to do what we've been called to do. And so as we close, I'm going to pray this prayer over all of you this morning. And I'm actually just going to ask you guys to just stand up right now, if you would, so I can pray this over you. And I'm going to actually also ask you to just lift your hands like this, just like palms up, if you're comfortable with that. Just palms up and really just take this posture of surrender first, like God, whatever I'm holding on to, God, whatever's holding me back from experiencing the life that you've called me to, God, I'm just letting that go. I'm giving that to you. But also this posture of receiving, Father, whatever I'm missing, I'm asking that you give me whatever it is that I need in this life to do what you've called me to do. And as you do that, I'm actually going to pray from my knees because that's how Paul says he's writing this prayer. He says he bows his knees in this prayer. And so I'm going to pray for you guys now, and then we'll be done. It says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the sense what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You guys can be seated.